And I'm Rebecca, and we are Mama Bear Apologetics. We're just two gals talking about life's big questions from a biblical worldview. Because when it comes to the battle of ideas, we need to be able to say, mess with my kids and I will demolish your arguments. You mess, I demolish. Got it? Capiche? (laughs) (laughs) Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Well, welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Rebecca. And so today, it is New Year's time. It's a little bit before New Year's, so I thought it would be an appropriate time to maybe talk a little bit about New Year's resolutions. So uh, when you think of just resolutions, who is the most epic person that you could possibly think of, Rebecca? As in making resolutions? Just the word (laughs) resolutions. Does any particular name come to mind? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not possibly the person we're talking about. Today. Oh, oh, John Edwards. Was that what I was supposed to say? I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought you'd pick up on that, but that's okay. We well, you know, it. actually, I wasn't familiar with this until you brought it to my attention. I know about some of his other things, but I didn't know about this collection of really? resolutions. So, yeah, oh. no, this is new to me. Okay. A little bit about Jonathan Edwards. So first off, a lot of times people get him confused with the guy that did that that crossing over show a couple years ago. No, I don't it know, like, but I know that my little brother is Jonathan Edward. <laughs> ah, okay. So I think that was the other guy's name, Jonathan Edward. He was a, a, a psychic medium on cable television. So oh, sometimes okay. people get confused when you say the words. So I say this is a very, very different person. Yeah. So Jonathan Edwards, he was a revivalist preacher sometime in the mid-18th century. And so you kind of picked up when we were talking earlier that when you think of Jonathan Edwards, what do you think of? Sinners in the hands of an angry God, the classic, exactly. <laughs> the classic sermon. <laughs> yeah, so he's, he's kind of known as sort of the forerunner of some of the fire and brimstone preachers. Although I don't think he can really totally be the forerunner. I think fire and brimstone preaching has been around a yeah, long time. There's George Whitfield, right? And um, no, there's others. So So, I didn't know much about him until this week. So I decided, you know, if we're going to be talking about him, I should probably look him up a little bit, kind of study, study about his life a little bit. And so one of the fun things that I came across is that he was the fifth of 11 children Mm -hmm. and he was the only boy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So part of me is wondering, (laughs) I know, I'm like, that is a lot of estrogen in one house and part of me wonders if he like became such a studious guy because he was just trying to get away from everything else i mean i can't imagine being the only boy with 10 girls um 10 mothers mothering him (laughs) oh my goodness poor guy (laughs) yeah but he he was a pretty bright guy so he had his master's from yale by the time he was 19 yes yeah. So he, he was pretty smart. So, yeah, he was known for two main things. You, you nailed the first one, sinners in the hands of, a, of an angry God. And from some of the stuff that I read, far from being what you'd expect of a fire and brimstone preacher, he was apparently really soft-spoken. Like all the stuff that I read about him said that he was always speaking just with gentleness. He would just kind of read stuff off like a sermon, which is pretty common back then. He was also, I'm reading here, that he was fascinated with the Enlightenment and he studied a lot of natural philosophy. He was 
um, fascinated with Isaac Newton. Um, mm -hmm. He wrote very, on various topics in natural philosophy, including flying spiders, light, and optics, which optics is, you know, is pretty complex, a lot of yeah. geometry and such. And he also worried about materialism and faith in reason alone mm. um, of some of his contemporaries. He also wrote sermons and theological treatises um, that emphasized the beauty of God and the role of aesthetics and spiritual life. Mm. which actually quite surprises me. This is only I'm reading the Wikipedia, so I, yeah. I'm assuming it's, <laughs> it's right. But wow, that kind of surprises me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it's kind of a shame that he's only known for sinners in the hands of an angry God because like there's mm. a, a guy's um, thesis from Liberty. I, I need to look up, see what his name is. I closed my browser here a little bit ago. Matthew Ryan Martin. So he has a... Um, a thesis, an online thesis here for uh, from Liberty that's on uh, Jonathan Edwards, but it's just talking a little bit more about like what a family man he was and how it's really a shame that he's only known for sinners in the hands of an angry God because it's really such a small part of the rest of his of his ministry of the rest of his writing. It's kind of like I think one of the the quotes that was in here: knowing Edwards for sinners in the hands of an angry God is like knowing. Jesus for, I'm trying to see. Turning the called? tables over. <laughs> yeah, like, the, oh, he said the whole Chorazin and Bethsaida, uh, you know, woe against Chorazin and Bethsaida. Yeah. You know, if that was the only thing you knew about Jesus, that would be like, well, that's a pretty unbalanced picture. It's so easy for us to, to take one thing about a person and kind of blow it up and not Isn't really, and forget, <laughs> and we do that with everyone and forget that they're, people are much more complex, typically. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 the squeaky wheel thing. That's the kind of thing because I actually did read most of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God before, before you know, doing this podcast because I was like, well, I should probably be familiar with it. And I was sitting there, and, and I was actually with John, and it was, it was funny. He was he was cooking Christmas dinner. Mm -hmm. I guess I did this on Christmas. He was he was cooking Christmas dinner, and I was sitting there reading this, and I kept laughing. But it wasn't because it was funny. It was because there's something in me that realized, I mean, this is so intense, I just needed emotional release. And I was just like, oh, you know, hiding my eyes from the computer going, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's saying this. But the thing that I was really interested in is that there was so much of what he had written that I recognized was absolutely true. But people just don't say it nowadays. It's like, we talk about God's love, but we don't talk about... God's wrath. And so mm -hmm. it's like God's love does not make sense apart from God's wrath. And the thing that really stuck out to me is that this man understands sin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He not only understands sin, but he hates sin in mm -hmm. a way that we cannot appreciate right now. And so for as much as we want to, you know, say, Ooh. oh, he's fire and brimstone, I'm like, this man understands sin. And so I actually mm -hmm. pulled a quote here that I wanted to read to you. And this actually... I just thought it was kind of the epitome of him describing sin. I'm like, this guy gets it. So it's kind of, you know, of course, in the 18th century language. Which I like. <laughs> of course, you'll follow it fine. Sin is the ruin and misery of the soul. It is destructive in its nature. And if God should leave it without restraint, there would need nothing else to make mm. the soul perfectly miserable. Mm. The corruption of the heart of man is th a thing that is immoderate and boundless in its fury. Mm. And while wicked men live here, it is like a fire pent up by God's restraints. Whereas if we were to let loose, it would set on fire the course of nature 
And as the heart is now a sink of sin, so if sin were not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven or a furnace of fire and brimstone. It reminds me of reading Lord of the Rings and Sauron Mm. is just this flaming eye and Mordor where he resides. Everything around it is dead and consumed and dying. Mm -hmm. And even his minions, those those that are working for him, the orcs and the the goblins and everything, they're just fighting each other. And if they didn't have something else to fight, they would devour each other. I mean, it's just, it's consuming and devouring. And yeah, that's, that's very true. And you know what? It's so interesting that you said that because as I read through his resolutions, I was a little bit repulsed because I thought, oh, it's so legalistic. Mm-hmm. And now when I, when, now that you said that, I think about it and I think, but it's true. I mean, he ha- if he had such an understanding of how horrible sin is and how it damages people and relationships and love, mm-hmm. then, then you'd be pretty mad at it too. And you'd be yeah. pretty obsessed with rooting it out of your life. As he seems to be by reading, as we'll go through the resolutions, people will see this. I mean, it, so in a way, I'm I'm kind of proving that I'm part of this generation that's repulsed at that because we don't, <laughs> we've lost, we focus so much on God's sin, I mean, God's love that we forget. And we're so careful about talking about sin because mm-hmm. our culture is so unable to handle the concept of sin yep. and personal sin yep. that we, we absorb it. Yeah. It's funny that you said you're repulsed because I think that was the exact word that I used because I was just kind of typing notes to myself as, I guess I said revulsion. I said, you know, that I was kind of giggling out of emotional release. I was kind of like laughing going, oh my gosh. Um, I weighed my feelings of revulsion of the God he described with the knowledge that most of what I was reading was absolutely true. It's just not the full story. Mm -hmm. We've gotten so wrapped up in God's love that we have forgotten who God is. In the Old Testament, it's clear that in our fallen state, we were unable to see God as He is. But in our current PC culture, I feel like we've gone a step further. Mm-hmm. And we're not even capable of talking about God as He is. We, we, it's like every generation sort of has its overemphasis. So you could say maybe Jonathan Edwards, I don't know. I mean, you know more about his life. And as I'm reading about, he cared about beauty and aesthetics. I, I mm-hmm. suspect he had, he was pretty balanced in his view mm-hmm. of God. And like you said, this whole sinners in the hands of the angry God gets ripped out and it's representative of him as a whole person. And he exactly. was much more complex. But it seems like we tend to each, you know, our generations or our time, we focus on one aspect of God and we mm-hmm. ignore others. Yes. And, and, we, think, and, and there was a time when we focused on the anger too much, right? Mm-hmm. And now we've, the pendulum has swung and, we, and, and sin, and now we're, many people I know, including Christians, have struggled with the concept of sin. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. yeah. And, and this kind of makes me think I've been working on my, my final paper for Clemson, and um, I'm, I'm doing it on epigenetics. And one of the things that I'm talking about in there is the way cells... Uh, differentiate from one another. So it's like you have, you know, the cells in your eyeball are not the same as the cells in your liver, although they have the same DNA. It's just focusing on a different part of the DNA. And it seems like, you know, it talks about how we're the body of Christ. And it seems like sometimes we act almost in that same way as we take, you know, we all have the same Bible, but we're focusing on different parts of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though it can seem like, oh, they're unbalanced and we're unbalanced, everybody's unbalanced at the same time, 
there there's possibly a role to be played when yeah. you're focusing on on one part just in kind of the grand tapestry of time it's when we just start saying that everyone needs to be like us yeah when the hand says when the <laughs> eye says to the hand you know be an eye and, yeah. and, and it's what is it I, I think that's the i can't remember exactly how paul puts it but it's it's like that mm-hmm. yeah it's it's when we start saying well everyone should be like this and in mm-hmm. in reality there's a diversity in the body yeah. and yeah. and we all kind of need each other so um, cuz some people's strengths you know uh, compensate for our weakens- weaknesses and 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 vice versa and and if we're taking this back to just the concept of apologetics and and especially apologetics with kids I think this is a really important, the, the, I guess there's two main really important things I think we can take away from Jonathan Edwards and just this whole idea of the fire and brimstone preaching. And one of them is like what we were just talking about, how a lot of times people will focus on one aspect. And even though it's good to have all of the aspects in in sight, you know, and, and we suspect that he did based on, you know, some of the, excuse me, other sermons that you found to recognize that we can be kind of both repulsed and drawn to something um, that a lot of times when people are too focused on something, they can maybe go too far. And especially in sinners of a, uh, ha- sinners in the hands of an angry God, I think he took it a little too far because he turned it from God's wrath against sin. And then somehow it got morphed into God's wrath against man. And so you have just the heart of the jo- uh, heart of a judge with no heart of the father. So if you're looking for the heart of the father, do not read this sermon because it will depress the heck out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's there's goodness in there that we can glean from it. So that would be like the idea of chew and spit. Like we always mm-hmm. talk about that. I know that sounds really gross, but just, you know, if you sometimes when you're eating, sometimes there's things you have to spit out and something, you know, decide what you swallow, decide what you spit out. You don't want to um, swallow the gristle. But so showing kids how there's good and bad to a lot of different things and it's never nothing's ever going to be all good or all bad. And so the more we can help them sift through things at an early age and the more that we ourselves can not fall into that trap of, you know, either making everything all good or all bad, uh, the more they're going to be able to sift through different worldviews mm-hmm. when they get older. There's always marble mixed in with the mud. There's always mud mixed in <laughs> mixed in with the marble <laughs> because we are made in God's image and mm-hmm. we love truth. And you can count on that in just about everyone you meet, except for some major psychopaths out there. <laughs> and even they, they, they might not love truth, but they, you know, they know enough to lie and to 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 fool people. And anyway, it's and. I, you, we can trust the image of God there and know that there will be truth um, mm-hmm. most likely that you can find amidst all the maybe extreme, more extreme things. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not just, that's not to say that someone could read this and this is exactly what they needed to read to get them in yes. shape. There was and, definitely a time in my life when I really needed to read this. Yeah. And, and I can tell right now that now's maybe not as much the time that I need to read and it. I'm a little repulsed by it because I was in a very legalistic church at one point that was yeah. extremely oppressive. And I was yeah. really depressed and it was one of the most difficult times in my life. And there was many wonderful things about the church, but it was we were very legalistic and this would have appealed to us, you know. Yeah. And I was very self-focused at that time you know, focused on perfecting myself and I was miserable. So, but I also want to bring out uh, the point that I think that 
periods of legalism, although that is never something we should aim for, mm -hmm. I think it's a very necessary developmental stage. I think we see mm. it in children. Yeah. I think we see it in artists, and I think we see it in spiritual growth. That's so in a children, really good we, point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In children, we see they go through a really black and white stage where it is just everything's black and white. There is no gray area. And for anyone who's had kids at those age, you know what a joy that is. <laughs> Actually, sometimes they kind of help you, that black and white thinking can help you see things that, you know, we can't see so well. Um, That's actually it, a really good point. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when I was in art school, I, re I recognized that this is actually a stage, a very necessary developmental stage that artists go through. And you see it even like when you're in middle school, Wow. Uh, in your English class, you have to understand and be able to follow, follow all the rules before you yes. can start creating art where you break the rules. Because it's like, in order to mm -hmm. know when it's appropriate to break the rules, you have to know that you can really do those rules first. It's the same way with ballet. So in ballet, you have to get learn how to do all the moves by the rule mm -hmm. until you are able to learn to do choreography. Yes. You, if you start off trying to train a dancer on choreography, they're going to become a very um, stunted dancer. They won't probably be, sloppy. be able sloppy and stunted. They won't, they will be limited. Mm -hmm. They will not be able to, they will only be able to do that kind of choreography and their career won't last long. Yeah. So, um, because of injuries and such, so you, you start them on the basics and when they have that really well, and it's like, it's, it's the same way with musicians. They have to get the foundational, you know, things in music before they can learn how to mm -hmm. improvise. Yeah, exactly. Music, music's the same way. Art is the same. Photography was this way. I remember when I was first doing photography and one of my professors was like forcing me to get detail in one of these highlights that I, I want it to be really high contrast, but she forced me to, and that was back when we used, you know, dark rooms and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that took me six hours on one print to get wow. it exactly the right way. You know, thank God for Photoshop now. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so it's like, you see this, but it also, I also see this in spiritual, in the spiritual life. I think one, you're right. That's a such a, that is so, that's such a good insight. Definitely. I noticed that as I was growing spiritually, I had to get to a point, but I found that I was most judgmental of where I just came from. Mm -hmm. when I, and so, and then I started saying, I, I bet you that's not just me, I bet you it's other people. And so I started watching other people noticing, you know, the people who were just saved, uh, sometimes once they started to clean up their act a little bit, now they're suddenly really judgmental on the ones that are just saved and haven't cleaned up their act. And then once they start maybe doing the good stuff and not just stopping the bad stuff, now they're judgmental on the people who have only stopped the bad stuff and they say, oh, you're not really pursuing Christ. And, and you just keep going and going and going and every step you take, you think, well, I made it here, so you should make it there. Yeah. And so like I went through, I remember going through a period of time where I was very legalistic and I remember coming out of that time and I remember being judgmental on the people that were legalistic and mm -hmm. I even remember coming out of that and being judgmental on the people who are judgmental. <laughs> and so it's, it's just uh, an infinite regressive judgmentalism. Yeah, it really is until it's like, yeah. I'm not going to say I've arrived, but now I recognize I can see people at all sorts of different stages and I can recognize the value of them being at that stage. And so even the people like I, I don't, even though grace my theology, upon grace, upon <sighs> grace, upon absolutely. grace, an infinite regressive grace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. There, there's some people that I see that have kind of risen to, um, prominent, 
prominent status in, in some circles and maybe in some of the hyper Calvinism mm. groups. And but I know where they've come from. I know how long they've been a believer. And I'm like, you know what, this is a stage that they're going through. Yeah. And I recognize yeah. it because I went through it. And I think, you know, and, and I've heard some people be like, oh, my gosh, they've gone so far. And I'm like, eh, give it give it some more years, you know. I think that is such an incredible insight, Hillary, because when I was part of this legalistic church, it was after I had walked away from the faith and I was coming back. And um, this church was really perfect for me. I needed that intensity at the time. You needed the structure. Oh my goodness, and it was so structured. And, And also, I was so passionate, so on fire. I remember I had this huge classical music collection because I had gone through a decade of just just listening to classical music. And it was back when you go to Blockbuster Music, if they used to have those, and you could listen to CDs. And they had this special store in Dallas that was where all the classical musicians went. And I learned about it. So I'd go there because they had all the best recordings. And oh my, I was obsessive about it. So, and so when I came back to the Lord, I felt like that that was somehow, I had to get rid of that because that was competing with my love for God. And so I got rid of, I I gave, I gave many of them away to my friends because I thought, well, well, and then I thought how selfish of me because I'm just sitting here and enjoying all this and not sharing it with others. So I shared it, you know, I gave it to many people in the church and they were like, okay. And now I look (laughs) back and part of me is like, oh, I wish I had done that on some really good recordings. But, and then, but that's what I needed at the time. It came out of a very sweet heart. That was, I I still think the Lord, (laughs) but it was very legalistic. And I remember beating myself up about it, you know, beating myself up about my, my love and my love for, for ballet and the arts and literature, you know, those things, I didn't know how to balance it. And so what I did is it, it was an all or nothing at all. It was very black and white. And, but, but you're right. It's what I needed at the time. And so I think maybe if we see someone going through that, especially our children, that we, instead of mocking them or saying, oh, it's just a stage or anything like that, we just love them and we endure with them. And of course, if they do something very extreme, you know, then you might want to sit down and talk to them. But no, I think that's such an incredible insight because it, it, it is, it's like part of the journey that, and that church was very much a part of the journey for me. And, um, so you know, I, I'm reading these, and right now they're repulsive to me. Maybe 10 years <laughs> from now, I, I might feel different <laughs> and I might laugh at myself for being repulsed. But because I'm like, he's so hard on himself and he's so in, inward focused and focused yeah. on me, me, me. Why doesn't he focus on others? And it is a bit of navel gazing going on there. <laughs> yeah. But we have to do that too, though. And, mm-hmm. and you can go to the extreme of not thinking about your motives and your actions and dismissing it and and not taking it seriously and so you know the pendulum is always swinging back and forth it's like when are we ever going to get it perfectly balanced (laughs) oh i'm not sure if that ever is ever going to happen but um let me let me give a little bit more of the history on when this is happening and then we might just go ahead and, and make a break and do a second second podcast and actually read the resolutions but i just wanted to wake make one more point 
of what was going on when he wrote these and why this was probably necessary. Are these New Year's resolutions? Or these are just resolutions that he wrote to himself? I don't know. Did they even do that? Was there a whole industry? (laughs) I don't know. Probably not like it is now. I think think because like up until I, I, I don't have it written on this copy. There's copy on the other. I think like maybe the first 40 or so. He did all at one sitting, and I don't know if it was like, I I doubt it was New Year's. I think it was probably one of those things where you're just thinking about, I mean, of course, him too, because it sounds like he's a professional thinker, pretty much. (laughs) I relate. (laughs) Yeah, I can too. And he just sat down and wrote them, and then like somewhere around 40, um, it's almost like the Constitution where you have like, you know, where I'm drawing a blank, not addendums, the uh, amendments. It's like he's got little amendments. Oh, um, beyond 40. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's, wow. it's somewhere around there. I'll have a link to the original. But you know what? In a way, writing down, because I have, sometimes it's so good to write it down because we do forget. Right? I like to write we, it down and put it up somewhere. I remember well, we when I was in. see it. Yeah. Yeah. I always recommend to people, and I did this all through college, and I haven't done it in a long time, but I, I really, maybe that'll be one of my resolutions. I'll start doing this again, is getting a dry erase marker and putting it like verses mm-hmm. on my mirror. Mm-hmm. And so like as I'm getting ready, I have whatever verse I want to focus on for the next week or whatever just written on the mirror or just, you know, encouragements to myself or, um, you know, things to remind myself, just things that I want to meditate on. But real quick, before we go into that, I just want to talk a little bit about when he was writing this. So this was in the 1800s. America was a very, very new nation. We were they a baby had, country. <laughs> we were a baby country. And we had just gone from being highly, highly structured with state religion and being under the, uh, the crown to freedom of religion. So wow. basically, I would say, if you have always been told what to do, and suddenly you're in a place where you're not told what to do, what, would, what do you think is your propensity at that point? To do whatever I want. <laughs> Basically, you go hog wild at that point. Yeah. And so that is yeah. why we have the, 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 the Great Awakening taking place is because you had a bunch of people who are basically like a bunch of teenagers going off to college where suddenly there's no rules. And you had people like Jonathan Edwards that said, I understand the ravages of sin. And so I'm going to preach against that. And he, like, I think one of the things I read was talking about how it started out with six spontaneous conversions. And I remember thinking, kind of laughing and being like, ooh, six, big deal. But the next sentence was, and then he had about 30 a week, every every week after that. I'm like, okay, that's that's substantial. So there was, there was something that was hitting people's hearts where they were recognizing, basically, we are destroying ourselves yeah. with what we're yeah. doing. And so... There was so much value to what he was doing. But again, we can't say that his methods then are the same methods we should use now. I don't know. At some point, maybe they are. And, and like what you said, we were a young country. Mm-hmm. And so think of young children. They need structure. They need structure. They need black and white thinking. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that when when so, there's so many unknowns in your life and so lack so much lack of structure... You need something that is a known, that is clear, yes. and it's black and white. Okay, it's a little legalistic, but it works. And <laughs> I can see where this kind of theology would draw people in because yeah. it would, and it would also give them a sense of purpose too, and that mm-hmm. maybe people were struggling with as well. Because when you have structure removed, you don't have that sense of purpose either. Yeah. So. But this is also where you have to take, kind of like when you're dealing with people, anytime I give a talk, especially if it's one where there's going to be any kind of conviction, 
um, kind of like when I gave the talk on reasons why youth lead the tr- leave the church, I made sure to say at the very beginning that I'm speaking to two different groups here. I'm, there's a group here that really needs a good kick in the pants that's been kind of lazy. And these are going to, these words are going to be food for your soul. And then there's the people who are struggling so much that they're already trying to do everything right that I'm about to lay the straw that's going to break your back. I'm just letting you know in advance, this is not for you. I want to encourage you in what you're already doing. And so I want to recognize that with Jonathan Edwards, that it will be for some people, it will be good. And for other people, it's going to be the thing that makes them finally say, I give up. I can't do all this. So like you said, the marble and the mud, we need to know that there's a place for both of those. And so I just want to say to the women listening right here, um, right now, or, or the men as well, if you are one of those people that already places so much burden on yourself, then probably when we're reading the, the resolutions in the next podcast, you know what, those might not be for you because you are already trying your best and you're, the, the word that needs to be spoken to you is the rest, you know, give my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all mm-hmm. who are weary and heavy laden. Yeah. Um, and so I just want to recognize the difference in audience there. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that our faith has messages for people at every point in their yeah. life? And so we have the, you know, take my burden. <laughs> yeah. And then we have the, whoa, <laughs> whoa, are you? you? You know, you're like whitewashed tombs and what he was saying to the Pharisees. Yeah, you brood and of vipers. <laughs> you brood of vipers. You're like whitewashed tombs. And yeah, so we, we've got both of those extremes. And it's mm-hmm. like it speaks to us at different times. And maybe even yeah. at the same time. That's the paradox of our, yeah. of our faith. That's neat. Yep. Okay, well, we'll uh, go ahead and close this one out. And uh, in the next episode, we're going to actually go through the resolutions. And now just as as a little spoiler, I have actually rewritten all of these resolutions uh, Mm -hmm. for maybe more current mama bear language. And (laughs) because... He was writing in the 1800s. For street cred. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, we're going to be given, uh, we're going to see if we can get through all of them. So we'll see. Uh, Sounds good. See you in a second. (laughs) This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. Have you been stumped by your kids already? Or maybe you have a nagging question of your own that you think would make a good podcast. Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we will do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, mama bears. We are all in this together.